0: welcome to the Murder and Mystery Podcast. I'm your host Summer. Happy spring everyone. Winter is finally over hopefully. The flowers are blooming. The sun's out. It's been so pretty here for the last few days. I love it and this has got so many people thinking about spring vacation and spring break and it really brings up memories of spring break when I was a kid, and some of the things that, you know, we used to do before the pandemic. And so I wanted to bring us a non-traditional killer this time. I am gonna tell you the story of a killer hidden in the depths of the ocean. I'm gonna tell you the story behind a movie that I love. A movie that scared me to death as a kid even though I lived in a landlocked state. A killer that doesn't walk on land. I'm talking about the movie Jaws. Yeah, this was actually based on a true story. And sometimes truth can be just as scary as fiction. And sometimes even scarier. So this book was actually written in the 70s and of course the story was modernized so that you know it it had a little more scare factor and it just kind of flowed a little bit better for us but this happened in the early 1900s in 1916. so the summer of 1916 on the jersey shore this was the place to be Everybody who's anybody was there. This was the place you went to socialize. This was the place to swim, to lay on the beach and suntan, to walk up and down the boardwalk, to shop. Tourism was booming. This town depended on its tourism. And everyone was having a great time. So this was a great summer for the Jersey Shore. On July 1st in 1916, charles van sant traveled to beach haven from philadelphia with his family they arrived in the early evening and he decided to start his summer vacation with a swim before it got too dark the beach was still open with a few people sitting in the sand and a lifeguard on duty so it was still cool to go in the ocean charles stopped at the edge of the water and was playing with a dog that was jumping around at in the small waves you know, just playing in the, in the little waves at the very, very edge, not, you know, very far in. And then he started to wade out into the water. The dog swam a little ways out, but then returned to the shore. So, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking of the opening scene of Jaws where the girl, you know, strips down and runs out into the water. And you see her silhouette, in the ocean as she's swimming and then you see the shark coming up under her oh yeah that was what scared me as a little kid i think i was four the first time i saw the movie and i thought jaws was going to come up out of my floorboards and eat me um yeah i was four though okay <laughs> so this this guy who's 24 years old and he went on out further into the ocean without the dog And he was a really strong swimmer, so he went out past the breaking waves. And he was only out about 50 feet or so from the shore. And the water was rising and falling and rocking very gently because he was past those waves, those larger waves coming into the shore, those breaker waves. And it was much easier swimming. The current wasn't too bad. Everything was going well. And suddenly, he was struck with the force similar to what uh, to a Mack truck. He was just slammed by something. Blood starts blossoming around him. He doesn't know what happened. I mean, he's just swimming in the dusk, and everything's calm, and everything's great. And all of a sudden, it's like he's hit by a truck. There's blood everywhere. He starts screaming. When Charles Screams reached the shore, the lifeguard leapt into action. He jumped into the water and swam out to where he saw Charles struggling. So this lifeguard doesn't even know what's going on. He just sees this man screaming, and he's out in the water, and he's struggling. And he gets there, and then he sees the wa- blood in the water. And he's he's kind of puzzled. I mean, what's going on? And he starts to pull this man to the shore. And so he gets into the shore, and two hours later, Charles dies uh, from massive blood loss at the Ingleside Hotel. And the whole city is now on edge. This is the peak of tourist season, and the beaches are crowded, but what happened? Was it safe to go into the water? I mean, this guy, he just went out in the water, and all of a sudden, he's injured, and there's blood everywhere, and he's dying of massive blood loss. Nobody knows what's going on, They turned to local doctors and scientists to figure out what happened, and they were stumped. There were theories of sea turtles, a German U-boat firing a a torpedo. No one thought of a shark. At this time, they weren't thought of as killers. You know, no one really saw sharks that close to the beach. No one really knew a whole lot about sharks. So no one really thought about a shark. Several people on the beach reported seeing a dorsal fin when Charles was being attacked. And so this is what led the town to question James Meehan, who was a fish commissioner. He stated that the shark was most likely interested in the dog that Charles had been playing with earlier. And that sharks stay far away from the shore. And this was a freak incident that was unlikely to happen. Okay, the dog didn't go that far out into the water. The dog was on the shore. You know, wasn't even in the water when Charles was attacked. And the dog had never gone out that far. The dog didn't even go halfway out before it turned around and went back to the shore. Charles was alone out there when he was attacked. So, this was July 1st. On July 6th. Charles Bruder a different Charles same first name but this was a different Charles and he was 27 he's from Switzerland and he was working as a bellhop at the Sussex and Essex hotel and he decided to go for a swim so this is a guy you know a 27 year old strong guy you know decided to go out alone for a swim he swum out far from the shore and two men happened to be on the beach that day he thought you know he was alone he went out alone for the swim and these two men just happened to be out there and they saw him struggling so when they saw him struggling he they jumped in a lifeboat and went out to rescue him when they got out there they saw that he was being circled by a shark Charles Bruder grabbed the oar and they pulled him in and got him into the lifeboat and was able to get him to shore. There, the house physician at the New Monmouth Hotel met them on the shore and attempted to save Charles, but he died on the beach from his wounds. So he had massive wounds as well. So this is two shark attacks in six days where the person died very quickly after... The attack. Tourists up and down the Jersey Shore started to leave, and wire netting was ordered to make sure the ba- beaches were safe for people to wade into the water. Uh, reports of sharks being spotted along the beach were running rampant. There was news reports of hunters going out into boats looking for man-eating sharks. Does this all sound familiar from the movie? This was this was blowing up out of proportion. Hugh Smith, the U.S. Commissioner of Fisheries, stated shark attacks on the East Coast were rare and that sharks were just unusually hungry. He didn't believe that this was a big threat, that this was just some freak thing, that there were some sharks that for some reason were unable to find food and were coming in to that shore and were feasting on tourists. So, July 12, 1916, the attacks continued, but they moved further north to Mat- Matawan Creek. So, this is a creek. This isn't in the ocean. This is where 11-year-old Lester Stilwell was swimming with his friend and a dog when they spotted a dorsal fin. But it was too late, and the shark pulled Lester under. 24-year-old Watson Fisher thought the boy had a cramp and dove into the creek to help him. When he got to Lester, he was attacked too. The shark tore into Watson's, Watson's right thigh. Watson died of his wounds at Manmouth Hotel, and Lester's body was found two days later. So at that point, now on July 12th, two people were killed in a creek off of the shore. So this is a creek that led into that flowed into the ocean so this is an 11 year old and a 24 year old that died north of wyckoff dock where lester and watson were attacked in the same creek in the mattawan creek 14 year old joseph dunn and his brother were playing on the dock so this is just 30 minutes after the attack on lester and watson joseph was attacked just 30 minutes after that, his brother pulled him away away from the shark and out of the water, but the shark shredded his left leg. Thankfully, Joseph uh, survived this attack. He was in the hospital for two months due to his injuries. The East Coast is a hotbed for sharks, and drones have actually shown, okay, so this, you know, drones have shown that they come in in close proximity to swimmers. These sharks, even though they, they stay far out, we encroach on their territory. You know, they don't come that close to us. They generally stay quite a ways out from us. But when we encroach on their territory, they, they still don't attack. They usually don't come up and attack us. The odds of being bitten are very small. It's believed that in 1916, these attacks were either a bull shark because some of these attacks were in fresh water. And bull sharks do can go into fresh water, so they do go up into these creeks and stuff. They've been found up in these creeks where they'll go a little ways up into these creeks and rivers that flow into the ocean. So they think that this was a bull shark um, that had attacked these. Or the work of m- more than one shark. It's often said that great whites and bull sharks are responsible. Great whites and bull sharks are both um, two of the most aggressive sharks. And so they're the ones that are responsible for the most shark attacks. Peter Benchley was inspired by these attacks when he wrote his 1974 book Jaws. And of course there was the movie in 1975. I watched this movie so so many times I loved this movie my mom had the book I read the book I I don't know why I really loved this movie I also never really loved going into the ocean I love the ocean I lived down in South Texas for 17 years and was about 30 minutes from South Padre Island and I loved going to the beach. I didn't love going into the water. I loved staying on the beach and walking on the beach and looking at it. But this movie kind of, kind of made me afraid of the water, I guess. Even though I, I watch Shark Week every year, I am fascinated with sharks. And I really truly believe that they don't attack just to attack. I, I do think that these attacks were a fluke. I do think that there was something going on. Maybe something with the food supply or something at that time. I don't think it's typical. However, the truth behind this is fascinating. Four dead people, one injured within days, all in one area. That is really, really scary. I mean, cue the shark music right but the odds of getting bitten by a shark are 12 million to one there are five or less fatal shark attacks in the world each year and there have probably been there have been about 12 confirmed shark attacks on the jersey shore since the 1960s so these shark attacks are very rare I want to really (laughs) emphasize that sharks are not, are not monsters. They're not swimming around there looking for humans to eat. We are not their food source. So although we have to be careful around them, sharks are wild animals. And when we go into their territory, yes, they might attack just like any other animal, they might attack. But it's on us to remain safe and to take care of ourselves because they are animals. So I just want to say we shouldn't kill them. We shouldn't harm the sharks because it's not the shark's fault. We're the humans. We're the ones with the bigger brains. We're the ones with the bigger intellect. And we know how to take care of ourselves. Whereas sharks are just doing what sharks instinctively do. But I thought this was fascinating I thought it was really interesting that this was based on a true attack and honestly I think they could have kept the same exact attacks and even putting it in modern day times and it would have been just as scary. They didn't have to change anything and it still would have been just as scary. So that is our murder for this episode. now i have a mystery for us and this mystery is one that i have been really excited to bring you i've been reading about this for a long time and doing a lot of research and it's it's really a parent's worst nightmare it's something that has kept me up at night wondering what happened to these kids so let's dive right in it's 1 30 on Christmas morning and Jenny wakes up for the third time since going to bed but this time it's to the smell of smoke she jumps out of bed and sees flames coming from her husband's office she wakes up her husband George and they run from the room and she goes to the telephone in the hall. Her husband goes to the oldest son's room to tell him to get the younger children upstairs, and he goes to the front of the house to get his wife. Jenny wakes up their oldest daughter, who is asleep on the couch. Seeing her husband come down the the smoke-filled hall, she turns and runs out the door. Once on the lawn, Jenny looks around at her family. She's holding her baby daughter. Her oldest daughter's standing beside her her husband, and their two older sons are there, but their five younger children are not there. George tries to go back in to get the children who were asleep upstairs in their room, but the fire is too intense and it's blocking the stairs. By the end of the night, the house is gone along with their five children. However, the next morning they find no trace of the bodies what happened to the solder children? So this is just a fascinating story. This is the story of the five solder children who went missing on Christmas Eve. So who are the Sodders? George Sodder was born Giorgio Sadu. He was born in Italy in 1895. He immigrated to the U.S. with his older brother at the age of 13. However, his brother brought him all the way over to the U.S., got him through customs in Ellis Island, and as soon as they got through customs and were cleared, his brother turned around, got back on a boat, and headed back to Italy, leaving Giorgio... By himself in the U.S. at the age of 13. He knew no one. He was here in this new country all alone. So he found work. And eventually his name evolved into George Soder from Giorgio Sadu. This is what people started calling him. And so this is what he started calling himself. George quickly found grunt work, carrying equipment, materials, and water for the other workers at a railroad company. And he worked with this railroad company making his way to West Virginia. And once he got to West Virginia, he quit working for the railroad company and started working for a construction company in Smithers, West Virginia. Um, This is where he started driving a truck and you know, hauling dirt from this construction site and hauling different equipment and stuff. But he was driving a truck for this construction um, company. And this is also where he met his wife, Jenny. George eventually owned his own trucking company. You know, he saved money and started his own company. He was well-respected. He was a prosperous business owner He They were a very stable, middle-class family that was very respected in the community. However, George had very strong opinions when it came to Italian politics. He especially did not like Italy's beloved prime minister, dictator Benito Mussolini. He was very outspoken about Mussolini. So, this is George Stoddard. George... He, he spoke English, but his English was very broken, and sometimes it was hard for others outside of the Italian community to completely understand what he was saying. Sometimes he seemed to misspeak. He was very, very hard-headed, very hard-willed. And he never talked about the reason that he came to the U.S. or why his family would just dump him in another country and never come back for him. Nobody knew anything about his family. And he never had contact with any of his family after he came here. Uh, Jenny Siparini was born on March 2nd, 1903. And she also came from Italy. She immigrated as a child along with her family, and her family settled in Smithers, West Virginia. Her family owned a shop there where she had helped her family in the shop until she met George, and they got married. Um, not much is known about the Ciparini family, except that there seemed to be some bad blood between them. Um, I'm not sure if it was because of George, but when Jenny married George, they moved a little ways away and they really didn't have a lot of contact with her family. So then you have the children. They had 10 children in all. Joseph was the oldest. There's not much mentioned about Joseph other than that he was away at war. He was in World War II at the time. He was in his mid-20s. And really he was gone at the time of the fire. It's not really mentioned uh, when or if he came back. John was 23 at the time. George Jr. was 16. Marion was 17. Maurice, 14. Martha, 12. Louis, 9. Jenny, 8. Betty, 5. And Sylvia, 2. So let's kind of start with what was going on before the fire. So the Sauter family lived on a farm outside Fayetteville, West Virginia. They had gotten married in Smithers, West Virginia, and then they moved to Fayetteville. They bought this farm right outside and kind of settled in this area. So Fayetteville was originally named Vandalia, but it changed its name to gain the title of the Fayetteville County seat in 1873. It was named after George Washington's French advisor during the, West, the Revolutionary War, the Marquis de Lafayette. It was fought over by, and held by both the South and the North during the Civil War. There is a historic courthouse that now sits on the site of the first use of indirect fire during a battle of the, in the Civil War. And this is a picturesque town right now. It's only 58 miles by car from Charleston, West Virginia. And it has a current population of about 2,892 people. So it's a small town. It's charming tourist town with public art. It has cute little shops, yoga studios, pubs, breweries, restaurants. You know, that kind of thing. It's a cute, cute little tourist town. There's 75 historic houses and buildings there's a walking tour available. I mean it it's a site of a civil war it's just a quaint little tourist town. but in 1945 this was a really quiet town with a large Italian immigrant population. So that's why they kind of em- they kind of settled here was this immigrant was this italian population you know they were drawn to this population this is where george built up his business and many of these uh, italian immigrants were very loyal to italy their home country they had this strong loyalty to it and george ruffled a lot of feathers with this strong dislike of mussolini And he really made some enemies, you know, even though the town respected this family and they respected his business and politically, he ruffled a lot of feathers. So while a lot of individuals alienated the family or had tense words with George when there were talked politics, it was kind of like, You know, today, there's been a lot of this with this divide between people based on politics. That's kind of what this town was like. Some people were able to just say, okay, we agree to disagree and kind of, you know, just we don't talk politics. But there were other people that this ended in some serious words, some serious threats. They alienated them. They wanted nothing to do with them. Some people wouldn't have anything to do with this business because of this. And so this became kind of scary. There were some, uh, a few threats that were pretty big right before the fire started. Armstead Rosser Long, a life insurance salesman, came to the home in October of 1945. And he told George, he and George we're talking he was trying to sell George some life insurance so Mr. Long lived in this town lived in Fayetteville West Virginia and he was trying to get George to buy his life insurance for him and his family and George said no and so Long told George his house would go up in smoke and his children would be in dis- would be destroyed and that he would pay for his words against Mussolini I mean what kind of a threat is that I mean that's a pretty direct threat and then an unnamed community member came to the farm that October as well and this man came up to the house and Jenny told him that you know George was out back he was working And so he walked around the house and he was like looking around the house. And George saw him and came over and asked him, you know, what are you doing? And he pointed at the uh, fuse boxes and told George that this was a hazard. It was a fire hazard. And he could fix it for him. He was looking for a job and he could fix that for him. And then he could do other odd jobs, but he really needed to get that fixed. Well, George had had an electric stove put in the home in January, and when he did that, he had the whole house rewired and had new fuse boxes put in and had the electric company come and check everything. So he knew everything was fine. So George told the man no and sent him away. Well, the man warned George as he was leaving that the fuse box was going to start a fire and burn his house down. So those are two threats about fires in October so then in December George and Jenny started to see this parked car on the side of the highway and a man in this car and he seemed to be watching their house but the thing was the car was only there as the kids were coming home from school the younger kids were coming home from school and when they were outside doing their chores and playing and stuff and when the kids would come inside the car would leave So it seemed like this car was watching those kids, the younger kids. So this could be hindsight on George's part, uh, but one report has him saying that the car was seen in the weeks leading up to Christmas and was present when the children were outside, but would only leave and would leave when they'd come in. Who knows? I mean, this could just be him thinking about that and kind of putting that together. It might not be anything. But he felt like they knew the kids' schedule or were getting to know the kids' schedule. Maybe they were wanting to know, you know, when they came home from school or what the family's schedule was like or something when they would come outside of the evenings. I don't know. But he and Jenny felt like these people were watching their kids. But this was all reported later after the fire. So the night of the fire, it was Christmas Eve 1945. And the solder house was full with nine of their ten children. Because like I said, Joseph was gone. He was at war. And I couldn't find reports of where he was at. But he was in World War II. He was deployed somewhere. But the rest of the kids were at home. Marion, the 17-year-old daughter, she worked at the local dime store, and she had worked that day, and when she came home that evening, she had brought gifts of toys for the younger kids, and so the younger kids had asked if they could stay up late and play with the toys that she had gotten them. You know, usually they were all, you know, they all went to bed fairly early, and Jenny and George said that, yes, they could stay up late, but they needed to make sure they got their chores done. So after dinner, the kids, you know, they wanted to put off their chores and play with their toys and stuff, and George and Jenny told them, okay, they could do that. But they had to make sure they got their chores done before they went to bed. So these chores included Maurice and Louis. You know, Maurice was the 14-year-old boy. Louis was the 9-year-old. They needed to go and feed the cows and put the chickens up in the coop. Martha, Jenny, and Betty needed to shut the curtains, turn out the lights, lock the door, and make sure everything was, you know, shut up for the night. So at 10 o'clock, George and Jenny go to bed. Marion said she would stay up in the living room and she would, you know, make sure that the younger kids went to bed. Um, So Marion and Maurice, Marion being 17, Maurice being 14, stayed up with Martha, Louis, Louis, Jenny, and Betty, Jenny the child and Betty, to let them all play with their toys and, you know, just stay up. At 1230 that night, um, or early morning, I guess, just after midnight, the phone rang and woke Mom, Jenny, Mom, up. And she gets up and goes into the hall to answer. A woman on the other line asks for someone who didn't live in the house. There's laughing and clinking of glasses in the background and stuff and the woman starts laughing and it's obviously a wrong number and Jenny tells her it's a wrong number and she hangs up. But Jenny notices that the lights are on in the living room and she can't hear the children. So she goes in the living room and she sees Marion has fallen asleep on the couch. So she assumes that the other kids have gone upstairs to their beds. So she turns off the lights and pulls the curtain shut and locks the door. And she goes back to bed, shrugging this off, thinking, you know, the kids are excited, it's Christmas. And they just, they went to bed and just forgot, right? So she didn't wake Marion up to, for her to go to bed. You know, Marion usually puts the kids to bed or helps get the kids to bed. And, you know, she'd worked all day. She'd stayed up late with the kids. And she decided to just let her sleep. At 1 o'clock that morning, Jenny is, you know, she went back to bed. And she's falling back to sleep. And it's about 1 o'clock. And she hears something hit the roof and roll down it. She sits up and she listens. But she doesn't hear anything else. And Nothing seems to be wrong. She doesn't hear the kids. She doesn't hear anything So she rolls over and starts to go back to sleep and then at 1 30 She wakes up again and this time she's smelling smoke So she gets up and she kind of looks around and she opens the bedroom door and she's looking up and down the hall And that's when she sees fire in George's office There's a small room just down the hall that George uses as an office She had told the police that she saw the fire coming from around the fuse block box and the telephone line where it came in from the wall. So it was like it was coming through the fire was coming through the wall. So she wakes George up and this is where all the chaos begins. So, you know, she wakes George up and tells him, George, George, there's a fire. There's a fire. We gotta get the kids out, you know. And, I mean, who's calling a fire? It's a house fire. Your house is burning down. You've got kids. They had nine kids in this house. She grabs two-year-old Sylvia, who sleeps in their room, and George runs to get the older two boys, John and George Jr. And the accounts that I read makes it sound like their room is past the office where the fire seemed to be, and so there would be a lot of smoke in that area. And so he went that direction. And it seems like the stairs to where the younger children slept was probably in that area too. Because he goes that direction and then he tells those two, you know, John and George Jr. to get the younger kids who are upstairs. They slept in the upstairs attic room. You know, get them and get out of the house. And he goes to check on Jenny And Sylvia and Marion. So he comes running back to the other side of the house. Well, Jenny had gone to the hall, to the phone in the hall to try and call the police, but the phone line wasn't working. So she goes to the living room where she knew Marion was and wakes Marion up and turns around to go back to see about getting the kids and sees George coming down the hall and he's motioning her. So they run out. So she, Sylvia and Marion Run outside, George is right behind them. They all get out, and that's when she does a head count and realizes that the five younger kids are not there. So when they get outside, Marion goes to call the fire department because, you know, their phone in the house wasn't working. She runs to a neighbor's house to call the fire department. So she's gone through a lot of this chaos. She goes to the neighbor's house, and at the neighbor's house, they can't get a hold of the operator to get through to the fire department. And then that neighbor says, you know, go back to your family, and I'll drive to town, I'll go to the fire chief's house, and I will get him myself. So Marion comes back. George, you know, during this time, Marion left. They realize the five kids aren't there George tries to go into the house. The fire is really intense at this time. He can't get to the stairs. He comes back out of the house and he runs around to the back of the house. Usually there's a ladder at the back of the house and there is a window that he thinks he can get the ladder up there and he can get in this window. Well, the ladder's gone. He can't find the ladder. So he goes to trying to climb up the house. He's barefoot in his pajamas he's trying to climb up this house and somehow he gets up part part of the way you know he gets up far enough to get a hold of the windowsill and sling something up and break the window so he breaks the window out of the attic but he can't get himself up into the window and all this time they're yelling for the kids they're screaming you know they're trying to get the kids but there's there's nothing they're not getting they're not hearing them they're not you know they're not finding these kids so then he goes to get the rain barrels that they have that they collect rain and stuff and he thinks you know maybe I can get the fire out enough to get to the stairs so he goes and gets those well they're frozen solid so then he goes to get his work trucks to try and pull them up to the window he has two work trucks there and he's going to try and pull them up to the window he can't get either one of those to start so this is just this whole chaotic mess that they can't get into this house they can't get in to get these kids and they're just they're running around they're trying everything they can they just they've worked and worked after exhausting everything they can think of the the fire is now consuming the entire house. They can't even get close to it at this point. They have to stand back in horror and just watch as their house burns down, burns completely to the ground. George and Jenny reported that it took about 45 minutes until the fire pretty much burned the house down and burned itself out for the most part. And the whole time they're doing this, they think their five children are trapped inside this house. I can't even imagine what that was like for them. They're trying everything to get in there to get these kids, and they can't, they can't, until it's at a point that, the house is just engulfed in flames and there's nothing they can do and so they just stand there and watch it remember this was one thirty in the morning that they woke up with this fire the fire department shows up at 8 o'clock the next morning this is seven hours after the fire chief has even been notified the neighbor had driven his car straight to the fire chief's house and had woke him up and told him about the fire. But the fire chief said he couldn't drive the fire truck. So he had to get a crew assembled, and it was Christmas Eve. It's 1.30 in the morning, and it took him until 8 o'clock to get people assembled and find somebody who could drive the truck and get to their house i do have to say that this fire department was completely voluntary it was understaffed they didn't have a lot of equipment but still to not be able to get a hold of the operator to make a telephone call to get to the fire chief's house, and the fire chief can't even drive the truck, and he'd been the fire chief for over seven years, to take seven hours to get somebody who can drive the fire truck to get to a fire that is burning down a house with five children in it? That just seems unreal to me. So after the fire, the fire department searched the house. Uh, they they said they didn't find any remains, and but since it was a holiday, and the wood was still smoldering, they told the family to just leave the site as it was, not to touch anything, and they until they could do a more thorough investigation, and they left. Um, they just kind of did a cursory look through and said they didn't find anything. So. In January, the coroner's jury met and ruled it an accidental fire due to faulty wiring. They didn't come back after Christmas to reinvestigate the site more thoroughly. So George, after a couple weeks, bulldozed over the house with three feet of dirt because they couldn't stand to just sit and look at the house. I mean, they he decided they needed to make a memorial for their children, They didn't want to just look at this burned out house. Nobody was doing anything. So January 2nd, 1946, the death certificates for the five children were issued. The problem is there were several odd things that George and Jenny found after the fire that made them start to question if the fire was an accident and if their children were in the home at all when it burned. So the first thing was they found out that there was a man caught leaving their property the night of the fire. Um, he had their chain blocks, which these are. This is this is a tool that's used to pull motors out of vehicles. These are attached to the roof of the garage or barn, and they're very heavy. So these were in an outbuilding, and it basically, he was find and the tools were returned to George and that was pretty much it nobody really questioned him much but later you know the phone line they did find that the phone line was also cut 14 feet off the ground on the pole and this man who was caught with the chain blocks said he had cut the line th- line thinking it was the electricity but why would he need to cut the electricity? When he was stealing stuff out of an outbuilding and not from the house he wasn't in the house he wasn't near the house nobody was you know nobody had woken george and jenny nobody was doing anything so why why would he need to cut that and why would he do it on the pole why not do it on the cut the line going into the building the ladder that george had been looking for the one that was always at the side of the house was found 75 feet away from the house at the bottom of an embankment so it had been moved away from the house it wasn't hadn't just fallen over and was over somewhere where it just been you know knocked over and kicked over or something It was moved and dropped at the bottom of this embankment where they couldn't see it. So a bus driver who was driving by the area around 1 a.m. that morning reported seeing people throwing balls of fire at the house. And this was around 1 a.m. This was around the time that Jenny woke up hearing something hitting the roof and rolling down. So... A few months after the fire, Sylvia found a hard green ball-like object in the bush. Uh, George said it looked like a pineapple grenade. So they believe that the fire was started on the roof. It wasn't electrical. The fire started on the roof and came down through the walls maybe. And that was why she was seeing it come out of the fuse box and the line from the telephone. The fire department told the solder's that the children's bodies had completely burned in the fire and that's why they weren't finding any remains. However, there were appliances, some furniture, and even an encyclopedia that they found in the remains in the rubble. So Jenny, thinking that was really odd, why are we finding other things in the rubble but we aren't finding any pieces of body, went to a crematorium and talked to somebody there and they were told they told her that it takes two hours in a two thousand degree fire to burn a body completely and that this is much hotter than a house fire, that a house fire would never get that hot. And the house fire only burned for about forty five minutes. And the at the crematorium they told her that even then bone fragments remain. So even then, there would be fragments, pieces of those bodies that would remain that they would still find, and they weren't finding anything. So then let's look at some things with the children. The night of the fire, a witness reported seeing these missing children. Uh, One witness said that they were watching the fire from the highway when she saw a car with children peering out of the window as they passed. So she thought she saw these five kids peering out the window as the car passed. Another witness claimed to have served them breakfast at a rest stop that morning in Fayetteville, the morning between Fayetteville and Charleston. She said the car had Florida tags. So she thought that she had served breakfast to these five kids. George hired an investigator, CeCe Tinsley, to look into the evidence of his children being alive and the truth of the fire so what mr. Tinsley found was that Armstead Rosser long the insurance agent that had threatened George you know the one that had said that because he wouldn't buy the life insurance from him that his house would go up in flames and his children would be destroyed uh, he was on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident. Uh, Mr. Tinsley also found that the fire chief had lied about finding evidence of the children in the fire, or at least that he'd said that he lied about finding evidence of the children in the fire, and hadn't told the Sodders about this evidence so as not to upset them. At least that's what he was telling other people in town, that he'd found this evidence and he didn't want to upset the Sodders So he had buried this evidence and just hadn't told them. In 1949, a full excavation of the site was completed and no evidence was found, like nothing from the children. I mean, like there was nothing that would indicate that there had ever been, that anybody had been in the house during that fire. In 1950, the West Virginia legislation held two hearings after the investigation attracted national attention. They closed the case at the state level, but the FBI picked it up as an interstate kidnapping because it, it was. they felt that it was pretty evident that the kids were not in the house at the time. They closed the case after two years due to no solid leads. There was just nothing. In 1952, the family put up a billboard at the side of the house and another one along US Route 60. These billboards had the children's pictures and information about the case. So, when these billboards went up, Ida Crutchfield, who ran a, a hotel in Charleston, came forward. She said that she had seen the children with two men and two women a week after the fire. Um, She said that they came into the hotel and when she tried to speak to the children, the men started talking rapidly in Italian and rushed the children and the women off to their rooms and they left early the next morning. She said she didn't take it seriously because it didn't seem like a big deal. It was weird at the time that, you know, she tried to talk to these kids and the men just like rushed them off and stuff. But then when she saw the billboard with the picture, it was oh, that was the kids. However, she wasn't taken seriously because it was seven years later and she hadn't come forward before then. So it was, oh, you know, it's been seven years. You wouldn't actually really truly remember. Maybe you're just seeing these pictures and this is sparking something. And how would they find these people anyway? Because it's been seven years. So George followed up on Leeds by himself. Uh, He drove to New York when he saw a picture in a magazine of ballet students, and he thought one looked like Betty. Um, it, It did, kind of, but not completely. He drove all the way to New York to this ballet school, demanded to see this child, and was turned away. He believed his brother-in-law, Jenny's brother, took their children and had them in Florida. So he went to Florida. He involved the authorities. Uh, it was this huge deal. And they had to, they jumped through so many hoops to prove to him, these are our children. These are not your children. And to me, it in reading this, it seemed almost like You know, they went above and beyond because they were thinking, you know, this poor man, he's lost these kids. He's losing his mind. We don't want to upset him even more, so let's just do what he's wanting us to do. He drove to Texas when a woman contacted him and said two men had confessed to being Maurice and Lewis. The woman refused to meet them when he got to Texas. He got there and they she just absolutely she wouldn't meet with him. Uh, but the men did meet with him and they they were nice. They talked to him, but they denied being his missing sons. He always had some doubts about this. He always thought in the back of his head that they might be. Um, but since they had denied it, he didn't um, he didn't pursue it any further. And then in 1967, Jenny receives a letter postmarked from Central City, Kentucky. In the envelope was a picture of a young man with a strong resemblance to Lewis, who would be in his 30s at this point. So she opens this letter and there's just this picture that looks like Lewis. And... She, they hired a private investigator to go to Central City and look into this. and then this private investigator just disappears with the money and never comes back. So they never found this guy. They never found what, you know what was going on. There is some talk that based on the writing on the back of this picture, Uh, especially a number that was on the back of this picture that actually is the zip code for the place in Italy where the dad where George was born, they believe that the kids might have been taken to Italy or that he was trying to tell them that this had something to do with Italy But nothing was ever found. George continued searching for his missing children, continued to follow up on these leads on his own until he died in 1969. Uh, Jenny also never gave up hope of finding her children. She wore black every day from the day after the fire to mourn her children. She tended a memorial garden on the side of the fire she kept the billboard up in hopes that someone would come forward with information on her missing kids, and she died in 1989. When Jenny died, the remi- remaining children took down the weathered building, bo- billi- the weathered billboard, but they never gave up hopes of finding their lost siblings either. Sylvia, Sald- Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest family member, Uh, is the only surviving family member from the fire and she keeps these stories alive because she doesn't she doesn't want to give up she wants the truth to come out she believes that somewhere out there someone knows what happened so she has kept up this this information and trying to find out what happened to her siblings so there is some information on some of the suspects that might have had something to do with this. There's Armistead Rosser Long. Uh, he was born October 12th, 1907, died May 29, 1986. He was the insurance salesman that had made threats against George. So he was considered a pillar of the community. He was the president of Rosser Long Insurance. He was a member of the Rotary Club on the Fayetteville Board of Education, on the State Board of Insurance and the Hughes Memorial Park Board. He also served on the coroner's inquiry jury, which was what ruled the fire an accident caused by faulty wiring. He told George in October that his house would go up in smoke and his children would be destroyed. This was because of the things that he'd said about Mussolini and because he didn't buy insurance for himself and his kids. So he didn't buy insurance from him, and he had strong political beliefs. So he made this threat against George about his house burning down and his children being destroyed, and then that's what happened. Rosser was never questioned about the fact that he was involved in closing the case on the fire after he had made this threat, that he was directly involved with George, that he had made a threat against George involving fire, and that this fire happened, and yet he was part of the reason that this was ruled an accident and no further investigation was made. F.J. Morris, the fire chief of seven, eight years, seven and a half, eight years at the time of the fire, he didn't show up to the fire until seven hours after it was reported because he didn't know how to drive the truck. He claimed to have found bones and organs in the fire, even after he had told George and Jenny that they didn't find anything, that there was no evidence at all, but that he thought that was because the fire had burned everything, that the fire had burned the bodies completely. Then he was telling other people that he had found bones and organs and had even buried a heart in a box. So when he said that, when... C.C. Tinsley found this out that he had made this claim he and George went to F.J. Morris and called him out on it and Morris said okay I'll take you to where I buried this. So the next day he takes him to where he buried this box and they get the box and then they take it to a corner and this coroner tells them, this is not a heart. This is a beef liver and it's never had anything to do with the fire. It's never been involved in a fire. It's actually fresh. So it's obviously a lie. Why was he lying? Was he really trying to help the family by saying we found nothing? Why didn't he cooperate with further questioning? Why wasn't he honest? Why not say I don't know? I don't know if your kids were here. I don't know what's going on. He was just a fire chief. He didn't have to investigate any further than that. That was for the police to do. So he made things more suspicious and strange by these things that he was going around saying. And then he was turned around and telling the family other things. It was just weird. Then there's forensic. Your, um, he was the director of Fayetteville County Bank, which he had inherited from his father. He was also the owner of Genutolo Construction Company. And this is where George had worked before he bought his own trucking company. So this is where George had quit working for the railroad and had started working for this construction company for genutilo so there were several motives possibly that come up here because george had left his company and started his own business and then his business became really successful so we don't know how george had left his business had he left it you know was it an amicable parting or was there some bad blood there Uh, George hadn't settled Jenny's Jenny's father's estate when he died. There was still money owed to the bank. And George didn't feel that it was his place to have to pay this. You know, Jenny had other siblings. Jenny had brothers. And so George felt it wasn't his place he shouldn't have to pay for this. And so he didn't settle that debt. And Genutolo was the co-signer on a loan George had at the bank, and he had received $1,500, which in today's money, this was about $20,000, in an insurance policy when the house burned down. And Genutolo was also on the jury that deemed the fire an accident, so possibly to get the insurance money. But none of these people were ever questioned. So, all of these people had possible motives. They all had had things that they gained from this, but they were never questioned. In an interview in 1968, Marion Sauter, you know, the girl who, the sister who had fallen asleep on the couch who had been watching the kids, she said that her family had asked the prosecuting attorney about why none of these other people were ever questioned about this and the prosecuting attorney told them that these people were his friends and so he couldn't ask those questions of his friends because today they burn your house tomorrow mine and I have a family and children So basically, if I go around asking these questions, they may do to me what they did to you. So I want no part of this. So what could have happened? Uh, Did these kids really die in the fire? Were they taken? There are so many theories out there. So, So many things that could have happened. I mean, they could have died in the fire. You know, and maybe... There wasn't, because there wasn't a very good investigation through the rubble of the house, they just weren't found. The bodies weren't found. And then George covered it up, and they just weren't found. Um, There was one theory that when he covered it up, it formed kind of like an oven because it was still smoldering, and that could have caused enough heat for the bodies to have burned completely. I don't know but there are things that have me wondering. I mean George was very outspoken and he angered a lot of people. Uh, He was brought to the country at the age of 13 and just basically dumped in a country by himself where he knew nobody. He didn't even really speak the language and his family sent him over with his older brother his brother got him into the country and said see ya and got on a boat and left and they never spoke to him again and he never spoke to his family and he had nothing to do with his family and he never talked about why he left italy so that that makes you think what kind of past does this man have what what has happened you know, was there somebody that maybe had a reason to do this? So, I mean, I'm not saying that he was into something crazy, but he was a survivor. And, you know, we don't know if he angered the wrong person, if he was into something. He also, They also said that somebody was watching their house. And they knew that there were young children there. You know, somebody, regardless of what was going on with George and what George had gotten into or who George had angered, somebody could have felt like these little kids didn't have to die or, you know, didn't have to die because of their dad. And maybe they were watching because they wanted to get these kids out. And maybe that's what they did. Maybe the intent was not to hurt anyone. Maybe it was to get him back, to teach him a lesson. Maybe to knock him down a few pegs. I don't know. But I know that that night the children were playing with Marion. Marion had been working all day. She fell asleep. Maybe the children decided to go outside and do the chores that the boys had to do and the girls decided to go with them. And they all went outside. All five of them went outside. And when they went to the barn, maybe they saw the people starting the fire. You know, maybe this wasn't meant to harm anybody. Maybe they started the fire in a way that they thought, okay, they're going to wake up and they're going to get out, but this is is something that's going to teach a lesson, get a point across, but then these kids went outside, and they saw them, and so when they went outside and they saw them, they had to do something, and because they saw them, and they could identify them, and so these people could get in trouble, and so they took them, and they separated them, and sold them to different places, you know, like human trafficking. And there's no telling where these kids ended up and what they ended up doing. But maybe they had very little memory of their family or where they could go. Uh, there's so much that we don't know. But I don't think those kids were in the fire. I think there would have been enough remains. There would have been enough there to have found to say that those kids were in the fire. It's just such an odd story, so strange, so weird, that after all of this time, nobody's figured out what happened to the soldered children. So there you go. There's our mystery for this episode. So if you have any information, I'd love to hear it. So looks up on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on our new webpage, uniquelytwistedproductions.com. We have a new Patreon system. Uh, we have a new patron group, so you can join that and get some extra features and get some extra content still in the works on that but i'm putting some stuff together so if you want to join that we would love to have you and see you next time bye